Hi everyone, it's Paola Diana and it's Unleash the Game Changers. Thank you for being here with us today. Our guest is Sarah Kadik, a brilliant neuroscientist and an advisor for philanthropists all around the world. Thank you, Sarah, for being here with us. Thank you for having me. You're also a dear friend of mine, and I know you're so busy, always traveling around the world, so it's really a pleasure and an honor to have some of your time. I would love you to share with us your story, because I think it's really fascinating, and it's also inspiring. And I hope you will inspire other girls to start you know, this career in neuroscience. Why we should invest in neuroscience? If you could give a message of one minute, let's say that, to convince someone. Apart from it being just absolutely exciting and thrilling, um, because the numbers are, are the numbers coming in now, and I'm rounding them up, that they're easy enough to find. The global burden of diseases that are directly neurologically related, right now, sits at around three trillion. Wow! And it's only going to go up. I mean. New figures in from the World Bank, National Academy, and places like that are looking like it'll head closer to 20 or 30 trillion. The global burden of disease from neuroscience alone. So we need more research. We need to be able to, well, not just research. We said, why invest in neuroscience? So that's the other thing. We need research, yes, but we need scalable solutions for access to care that comes out of the research. Mm -hmm. De you know, so access, delivery, a better understanding of these disorders around the globe because we're certainly not looking at diversity in a way we should and very different genetic makeups will have very different consequences and potentially have very different answers that we can't find sure. but i think the bottom line is we're, we're literally facing a pandemic two pandemics one literally the burden of disease the cost of that neurological disorders yeah the cost of and society. two the mental instability. Global mental instability, I think, will be a pandemic that we were already in to a certain degree. And if we don't do something about it, it will make climate change look like child's play. Oh, Sarah, I never thought of that. Thank you. You're really enlightening me. I'm a, wow. I mean, how can and we ask the population to make decisions scary. when they're sitting in the throes of anxiety, depression, yeah, and, and also which kind of decisions that, you know that they could make in, in you know in this scenario. I mean, so it's very dangerous. Every major world incident or disaster right now, we're very good at aid, physical aid, food yeah. aid, yeah, but educational not a, aid, not a mental, yeah, mental health aid. I think is going to literally be. Uh, I don't mean to diminish climate change and the environmental, I'm very passionate about that too. And as scientists, actually, we are now looking at it in a very different way, which is, that's the biggest topic of the day is, that scientists travel the world, we go to conferences, we go present our work everywhere. We, uh, you know, and now we are all looking at, okay, how do we continue to create a global scientific research environment without adding to climate change. But but I still think that out of the two, yeah. climate change will be the least of our worries in the next 20 years. And also there is a connection between mental health and violence, correct? Yes. I mean, people, they don't talk about that, but it's it's another cost for society. I remember I read this book that uh, you and one of your neuroscientist friends gave me, this, The Anatomy of Violence, mm -hmm. and it's fascinating. 
I learned so much and I didn't know because people, they don't talk about that, you know? Violence is a burden for society, for all of us. And you know, you see like the terrorists the other day, you know, they, they, they can, they, they can kill everyone, you know, in the street, I mean, at any time, you know, you, you don't need to be in a certain place, in a certain country at a certain hour, you know. Well, and we, we never really talk, we talk about physical violence, we don't talk about mental violence. So also. Abuse, control. Also, but, yeah. I mean, that's, we're reflecting that on And I think it's connected, no, with the physical violence. Yeah. I think uh, people, they start abusing you psychologically, you know, mm -hmm. trying to control you. And then eventually it will become also physical. Yeah, physical is just when something gets to a point where it slips out. It literally, you can go so far and then you just spike out. It's, it's like a hedgehog will go along for a bit. And even when it's threatened, it will just, you know, no, it'll no. just curl up in a little ball and it'll be fine. Right. But then it'll hit a point where spikes go out. So it's, it's the same kind of concept. But again, mental violence, I think, will be... It's horrible. You know, I, I was a child, my father was very abusive, psychologically and, uh, and mentally, and then eventually sometimes also physically. But for me, it was a nightmare. So I understand completely what you say. I, sometimes I think I'm a survivor myself, so, because I could heal myself, you know, and become uh, an adult uh, with a, I mean, balance. It is. And physical violence is, well, it obviously is catastrophic in some cases because it's fine you know it's fine that you yeah. kill somebody and yeah and go. there's then the offshoot that it affects everybody mentally afterwards is connected to it but from the brain's perspective physical violence is quite interesting because the act of committing it so you you've essentially raised the level of everything that's firing around to the point where you shoot a gun or you put a knife in somebody but and then it drops right back down. Yeah. So your cortisol levels, the classic kind of yeah. stress hormone, yeah. will just fly down. And it's done. But let's work. go back. <laughs> when you enter university, and which university you did, and also tell me more about uh, how did you enter? Because I know you had really to push hard. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> I, and I, I genuinely love this story now, and I, but I will absolutely own up to the fact that I did not love it when I was going through it. Um, and I don't think anybody at the age of 18 likes it when their plans get thwarted, um, especially if you're a type A personality and you think you've been told that you're smart enough to get everything. Um, but I, I did the classic teenage hormonal meltdown, breakdown, and didn't exactly ace my exams. Um, but it's something that happens almost it happens to yeah. so many people. Um, unfortunately, I also had the personality of not particularly wanting anything to get in my way. And I was pretty determined. I mean, you could call that stubborn. You can call it determined. You can call it adventurous. You can call it many things. At the time, I think it was just sheer desperation. So I wouldn't like to class myself as anything other than desperate. I wanted to leave home. Home is perfectly fine, but I wanted to go. I wanted to go to university. I didn't have the grades, so I called up the admissions officer every day for a week until he agreed we cut a deal. I think he was sick and tired of hearing it, quite frankly. And we cut a deal. And he saw all my grades for the years before, and we had a deal that he would admit me onto the course. And it wasn't the original university I wanted to go to, but he said, I will admit you under guarantee that you have to be in the top five of the class every year until you graduate. Amazing. He said that 
as soon as you're not, you're out. And you accepted the challenge of Christ. And I did. And that was about two weeks before university, before literally the semester started. But how many grades you so, were missing, can I ask you? Yeah, all of them. Wow. <laughs> I literally, I look at my transcripts now and I think, you accepted me, why? I'm like, what planet were you on? Uh, That's great. And, and it wasn't as though they had a shortage of students that year because that, our class was 150-something people. But you see how <laughs> other people, strangers, can change your life. You know, your neighbor giving you the gift of the book of sciences. You know, this uh, professor accepting you. So it, yeah. it's amazing. It's and you like made us. That's why. That's why I now tell people. I mean, I gave a lecture or a talk to the graduating class of the university where I got my PhD from a couple of years ago. They gave me an honorary doctorate. Um, which was wonderful, but you, and you, Congratulations. Have a, yeah. you have to give them a nice little speech and inspire the students and watch them come up along the stage one by one as they get their degrees and and the, the vice chancellor is asking them, oh, so what are you going to do? And I can hear, I'm sitting on the front row and I can hear all of them say what they're going to do. And there's a part of me thinking, oh, you may end up in a completely different place, but good for you for thinking that right now. <laughs> but, but you watch all these students come around and you think, okay, I'm supposed to inspire them now. And they look at you because you clearly look very old to them, um, because they're all sort of 21 or 22, and, and you look ancient at this point. And you have to convince them that you actually know what you're talking about. Um, but the one thing I said to them was, if I had any message, stay present in your story, even if it gets screwed up at every little turn that you think you're getting the right place and something goes wrong, stay present, because otherwise you will miss things that you'll be able to talk about in 20 or 30 years in the same way I'm going to tell you some fun stories. And the, the thought that I could have missed those will crucify me now. Yeah. Um, but I did. I got in. I did my studying. I but also you are believing time. yourself, correct? So that's what saves mm -hmm. you, I guess. You have to believe in yourself. I think this is what really you makes a difference. You have to, well, not just believe in yourself. You actually have to trust yourself. Yeah. And I think women in particular are particularly bad at that. They're not... Yeah. We look for outside validation more than we are willing to trust that actually we might know what we're doing. Unfortunately, that's true. Um, I think that's still true. But my experience is if you just are willing to trust yourself a little bit, you can usually get it right. And when you get it wrong, you can fix it. Yeah. No, I agree with that's you. Trusting yourself, even if no one else is trusting you. That's very important. This is what I did as well, you know. I mean, no one was believing, you know, in my mm -hmm. career. And I just, you know, didn't listen to anyone. I was only listening to myself. And I tried. And then I made it. Well, and you're on your journey. I mean, that's the other thing that I've realized over the years is you have to see the obvious, which is you're the only one on your journey. Yes. Yes. So outside validation can be useful in some cases but nobody else is on that journey with you they can be alongside you that's not to say that the people who mentor you who help you who defy you who challenge you who hurt you they're all alongside but if you don't actually sit in your own journey then that's your loss that's that you can't put that on anybody else um, and you will miss out on things so I think being part of it exploring where you go, changing course, which is one of the things I talked about after, after putting all that time and effort into studying to be a neuroscientist and getting 
through the, the big hurdles. How many years? The, so it's six years in total, but then I kind of sped through the, the time frame a little bit because quite frankly, I didn't have the resources to, to spend longer. Um, yeah. You know, I had the funding to do a degree in three years. I had the funding to do a PhD in three years. I didn't have the support to do it for any longer, which so now, now do? they do have. So I, I finished and then I, I moved to the US um, on a whim. And some people thought you were crazy, right? To yeah, abandon everybody. academy. Everybody, not some. Well, no, we, we need scientists like you. We need like scientists in the natural world. Yeah. We need them in the yeah, legal absolutely. world. We need them in yeah. you know, the business world. So this is why one of the things I've done a lot of work on in the last 10, maybe 10, 15 years, is really encouraging people to see the benefit of being able to shift the workforce and maximize what you get out of a person. I'd rather have a person in my lab that worked full on for five years delivering spectacular research that then moved on into a career in law or yeah. Well, yeah, name your poison um, than somebody who kind of half-heartedly worked for 10 or 15 years and didn't really deliver anything. I understand completely. And as a scientist, you were also the creator of uh, a TED talk in Edinburgh in 2012, correct? Mm. Misbehaving beautifully. Lots of fun. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? Because uh, I think it was fascinating the way you created that event. It was. And it, 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 again, this is all part of the stories that you can tell later on, which is why you never ignore strange opportunities when they come along. I had gone to TED a couple of times. I'd been introduced through a good friend and got to know the curator, the European director of TED. He's um, Italian, correct? Yeah, Bruno Giussani. Um, lovely, lovely person. And Chris Anderson, who is the, the head of TED. And Bruno had, I'd met him, I'd introduced him to a number of scientists over two or three year period. And he turned around one day and said, you know, I, every now and again we, we ask one or two people to be hosts at the at the conference and i think at the time they'd only ever had four or five hosts yeah uh, bill gates was one of them um al gore might have been one i mean some pretty heavy hitters and so he reached out to me and he said i'd like you to be one of the hosts which my first response was i guess that's funny that's very cute um why and he said, well, because I think you have a story to tell. So I said, okay, do I get free reign? Can I do anything? <laughs> and he laughed and, and said, well, possibly. <laughs> so, and just to explain, the hosts typically are the organizers. So Chris and Bruno would always host all of the, the sessions. And for anybody who's seen the TED Talks, you typically see TED Talks online. They're, they used to be 18 minutes now. They're different lengths. But... They're beautifully shot, beautifully edited videos of the talks that go on stage. Behind the scenes, what happens is there are sessions which usually have anything from four to six people in them. Mm -hmm. They're themed. They can be on all kinds of topics that typically match the headline topic for the, the meeting. So being a host literally meant that you were given a session, a whole session. Amazing. And free reign to pick all the speakers, to to give the, the, you know, the, the session that... that a heading or a theme or whatever. How were your speakers? Tell me. So mine, mine were an amazing bunch and I, I have to give them all credit for 
joining me on a slightly ridiculous journey because what I chose to do, which was very different than any of the TED hosts before, was to try and create, on stage, create an, a, a story that went through a, a, quite an obvious arc, but with very different presenters, very different people, but that all spoke to the, this, the brain and all of its different parts, the good, literally the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, which is why we called it Misbehaving Beautifully, because I wanted, to, I wanted to expose people to how your brain is not just delivering functions in a very binary way, that the same part, the same circuits, the same cells, proteins, yeah. and all the bits, that when they work in concert and work well can deliver powerful emotions that are positive, such as you know, an appreciation for beauty and nature, love, kindness, um, compassion. These are the same circuits that when they're activated differently or when they're not working properly, can deliver hallucinations, disorders, things like schizophrenia, depression, um, these are the same parts of the brain. It's not an all or none. It's a, it's such a continuum that I wanted people to understand that it's, it's, it's not something to be scared of. That we need to normal. Yeah, it's normal. We need to unpack it a bit more. We need to figure out how we maximize the wonderful parts and how we remove the unnecessary complications of the less than wonderful parts, which is very different from how do we cure people or how do we fix mm -hmm. something. And I will be the first to say that I, I absolutely object to people saying things like, we need to cure autism, we need to cure schizophrenia, we need to cure, because they treat these things as though they're demons, and they're not. We need to remove the things that don't help somebody who has a condition like schizophrenia. We need to remove depression and anxiety from somebody who has an autistic brain. We do not need to cure their autism because, again, that brain comes with every single part of them that makes them who they are. So there's one of the things I wanted to do with this session was to create this story for the audience that was there. But at the same time, what I was told I had to do is make sure that every talk stands alone. So that if you go and look at any of those talks yeah. now online, they make sense. In and of their own right, they make sense as a talk. But I wanted to weave a story, and it had never been done, apparently, before. So yours was a message of acceptance, basically. Of acceptance, mm -hmm. of wonder, of understanding, of allowing yourself to see the, the nuances. And, and also, I wanted people to understand that I, we needed everybody in that audience, and everybody around the world, to realize that the support for actually doing the research into understanding the brain was critical. And this didn't magically come out of nowhere. You know, the, the money literally doesn't go on trees. We need support, whether it's advocating at the government level, whether it's philanthropy, but whatever it is, we need the support. Scientists can't do that without help. So there's yeah. a part of a message was... So you don't want the public there. opinion to demonize a certain, yeah. uh, you know, type of uh, disease or conditions. Yeah. yeah. So I, I played around with a cast of characters that... I literally asked them would they be willing to be part of this story as well as giving a substantial talk and would they work with me in a slightly different way than was typical for the TED mold. So I, and there's been various different blogs about it, but I literally had everybody from, you know, an award-winning, I think, Oscar Golden Globe, BAFTA winning, 
visual, effect, visual effects supervisor um, or guru from Hollywood who uh, worked on movies like Apollo 13, Avatar, mm -hmm. um, Hugo, I think. He, he literally just got the Oscar for Hugo when I <laughs> was working with him on his talk. Um, and he was fascinated by neuroscience to a, a, a you know, world-winning, world-award-winning, famous choreographer, um, to a scientist, to a mental health campaigner, stroke comedian, um, to a, a an amazing legal academic scholar, professor with schizophrenia. Um, and that's probably the most challenging speaker I had because who in their right mind literally brings somebody with... What's his name? Schizophrenia. So her name is Ellen Sachs. Um, and I went to meet with her in LA. She has been ca um, campaigning and championing, making sure that you, when people have mental breaks, that they're not locked up. So a lot of times people who have mental breaks, especially out in the community, and in the US in particular, tend to be sectioned. So if you have any kind of mental disorder, the likelihood of you getting treatment by professionals versus being locked up in jail is minimal. So she's been campaigning for changing that type of behavior. Um, but she herself is, she's written a book and she herself is uh, schizophrenia and was really excited about the thought of doing this. But the two biggest trigger points for a psychotic break for her were long distance travel and public speaking. So I was bringing her in so from LA to Edinburgh and asking her to get on stage. So we knew this, uh, she came with her partner we had to, you know, I had to prepare for the fact that she could have a psychotic break on the stage. It was entirely possible. And I would need to be able to get her immediate care. So it's not normally the thing that the, the TED yeah. team prepare for. Um, and it was quite nerve-wracking sitting in the in the booth well when done. she did, well did her speech. But and she nothing was phenomenal. Happened. Nothing happened. No, it, it, was, it was all good. Nothing happened at all um, that was bad. And with everybody else, the, their talks were exactly what they wanted them to be. They all agreed to be on this journey. They became quite close. They enjoyed working together. I think probably the only thing I hadn't planned for was the aftermath from the people attending TED that year. Um, what happened? The amount of people came up to me over the next few days, literally sharing their stories of, of either their own mental health, family, friends. Breakdowns. The uh, breakdowns. The, I mean, I almost felt like I needed counseling afterwards because I was inundated wow. with this deluge of people wanting to talk about mental health, which it's now, and then in 2012, it was beginning to be more visible, but this was before the royals to come. Yeah. This area yeah. as, a, as a charge. You had some of the Hollywood types like Glenn Close. Before people talking were about not it, talking about that. Yeah, it was a taboo. The, the stigma, well, it's still very much a stigma, but I felt like I kind of pulled on this string. You know, Ted is usually a very upbeat place. Everybody's happy, everybody learns things. And all of a sudden I pulled this string to, to unleash this kind of, you know, what do, we, what do we do in a world that looks like this? Well so done, it, was, well it was done. challenging, but... Yeah, well done. It was phenomenal, and, and as I said, you know, a choreographer that could show us how the body can perform movements that seemingly are impossible, but that's because the brain is able to accommodate learning and translating and responding to other movements in space. 
Um, uh-huh. You know, the, the visual effects guy who specialized in creating the illusions that we go and pay and see and believe. That's the same part of the brain that creates the kind of hallucinations that will drive somebody with schizophrenia or severe bipolar to hurt someone. So it's the same part of the brain that we all have and it it gives us the hallucinations when we look at tricks of magicians, let's say that, Mm -hmm. but also in certain people can give us psychotic episodes. I mean, it's obviously more complicated than I'm portraying it, but the reality is we reward one behavior, we demonize another, and we think that they're separate, but they're not. They're contained in one little sort of three pound ball of 80 million or so. And what about depression? Yeah. I know you also had a speaker affected by severe depression. And yeah, so uh, Ruby Wax, uh, uh, she's now a campaigner for mental health issues um, all over the UK. Yeah, yeah she had severe, severe depression and, and breaks. Um, and she really wants to talk about it. She's since gone on to write a number of books about this. Um, and it's very clever. She's clearly got a presence on stage and is able to talk about her own investigations. She went back to college to study neuroscience. Um, oh, that's amazing. Focused on mindfulness. Um, I was really interested in all of this. But it, again, it was talking about issues that people like to see buried. Um, we quote statistics, still quote the statistics that one in four people are affected by some type of mental disorder. Uh, that's it's a, a lot. One in four is really a lot. Yeah, but that's absolute BS. Yeah. It's it's one in one. Wow. Every single person, if you ask yourself truthfully, will at some point or have at some point experienced a mental imbalance that's unproductive, whether that's anxiety, I stress, I hear depression, um, trauma. It's true. So it doesn't have to be a grandiose condition for it to be real and the fact that we still act as though it is only one in four again ridiculous the fact that we because only few people don't talk about about it it yeah is ridiculous it's no different than uh, i talked to my my uh, 11 year old niece recently who was worried about a couple of things and I pointed out that that's no different than being worried about a spot. Yeah. You know, the majority of people will get acne at some point or, or will graze their knee or will have something that yeah, they don't natural. like. It's quite and, normal to have it. And yet we are perfectly fine about that, but we're not okay with saying or talking about the equivalent of a temporary spot or a graze mm-hmm. inside your head. As a scientist, I get it. Most people can't even envision what's inside their head. I, I, I can see it. I've, I've seen it. I've worked on it. I have exquisite images of what's inside your head. So to me, it doesn't seem like an imaginary something. Sure. But I think we need to remove this whole idea of the brain being this special thing that Oh, and, can't talk about. and the idea that someone has a perfect brain, other people have, you know, a sick brain. So, you know, even a, you know, a normal brain can have this kind of... Uh, we know this, post-mortems. Yeah. I mean, you look at a post-mortem brain and a person can have been functioning normally. And again, normal is a, it's an arbitrary yeah. concept. 
but they can have been living a fulfilled life, working, playing, enjoying, etc. And we can do a postmortem on that brain and see all kinds of things that aren't. And actually, one of the things that, that I'm sort of starting to work on now is the future of what we term next-gen neurotechnology for being able to look at human brains invasively without causing damage. That would be amazing. How can you do um, that? So looking at taking the tools that we currently use in research environments to be able to record from hundreds and hundreds of neurons without damage, sort of damaging them too much. So surface level recordings. We can do that again. You open a brain up, we can put little tiny electrodes, sort of arrays on the top of the brain to be able to pick up signals in different areas. But we'd like to be able to go into deeper areas of the brain. Again, it, it's only wise to do it when you're already opening up the brain because as so with any part of your body, it's, it's invasive. Yeah. But at least we should be able to reach the point where we can do some of that invasive work without incurring permanent damage on the brain. And initially, we'd be looking at using it for things like brain tumors, epilepsy. That Those are the two areas where you'd want to go in. When we already have some tools like deep brain stimulation to help with Parkinson's. That's now being used in depression. Um, but it's perfecting the kind of technology that does minimal damage. We need to have like a microchip in your brain. You can put yes, yeah, uh... with very very tiny electrodes. Okay. That that literally don't hurt. I think I saw brain. one. You showed me one in your house. So. Yeah. So <laughs> we have, and now we're on to the next gen of those sort of thing. It's it was complicated, small, really <laughs> tiny. Wow. So they are, but the technology is there now. We have. I mean, the field of neuroscience has benefited from some spectacular engineers coming into the field. We, I don't know what we do without them. Um, and be able to help work, you know, nanoscientists that help us work on really, really refining and, and shrinking some of these devices. I mean, I, Amazing. I remember as a student, we used to say, what would we love? What would be perfect to have to do our experiments now that would make them easier? And we described some of these tools back then. And the fact that we, we now and have now them blows, us up. It, it blows me away, the fact that I mean, we never actually believed they'd happen. It was, it was always, well, in 100 years' time, maybe somebody will figure it out. And actually, it's happening in 20, 25 years. <laughs> and then, so, and now we have them, and they're, they're remarkable. Um, and being able to make them accessible to the, the rest of the world. I mean, and that's another thing with science. I think science, as we know, is, like everything else, is more global. Um, yeah. So making things affordable to scientists around the world. Um, it's not just a case of empowering young girls and boys to go into science in the UK or the US. It's we have to look at science Everywhere. globally um, and make sure all those tools are available. But it, it just means that we'll get closer and closer to be able to look at people and not just look at their symptoms. But drugs, but, they destroy the brain, correct? I mean, I, I, I think people who use drugs, they don't really understand the long-term, you know, damage they're doing to their body? No, and then they, they won't because the messaging that has gone out about drugs since the 80s, and probably Nancy Reagan, I suspect, was the one who was doing the whole initial campaign of say no to drugs and drugs kill. And if you actually look at the media and the messaging around drug use, mm -hmm. Probably for yeah, the last twenty, no, forty years. That's forty years probably. It's all been about say no, drugs kill, drugs are bad. I mean, it's all very much doom and gloom. You take drugs, you're gonna die. 
But what happens with your brain, I mean, your brain is literally very literal. It, it, it Tell us. collects information. What happens with the brain? It compares it to information it has or thinks it has. It does a quick kind of like, oh, does this match? Does this not match? Stores it or gets rid of it. So if it sees a message, drugs kill, and you take a drug and you're alive, your brain is very good at going, hmm, drugs kill, took drugs, I'm alive. Is so one part of that yeah. story is not true. And so it will sometimes repeat it, and you repeat it a couple of times, drugs kill, took drugs, I'm alive. Yeah, so it would have been better. That piece of information, information another message. Yeah. is inaccurate. So then it just moves on to take drugs, I live. And then you add in all the other parts, take drugs, find a place that makes me happy, I get rewarded. So it, it associates happiness or whatever might come along with that with, yay. Reward. Yeah. And I didn't die. And so it starts to have this up and it's like, yeah. huh, okay. So this is all good. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, somebody may take a drug and there's there's drugs in, in company, there's a whole array of them, and have a bad reaction. So then the brain will go, huh, took drug, didn't like that, avoid. Might take it a few goes to sort of figure out avoid. But the messaging around don't take drugs, they're bad for you, I think failed abysmally because it it went about it in this, you will die. <laughs> well, But what they do exactly to the brain. <laughs> well, that's a whole different story, yeah. but have you seen that messaging? No, but in fact, I would love to change the message. I'm with you 100%. So a yeah. very good friend of mine, a very old friend who whose lab I joined when I was first a postdoc in the US. He's a neuroscientist, pharmacologist, based at Duke University, he and another another professor there got sick and tired of all of this messaging. So they decided to actually do the research and write some books. And they're now on, I think, edition four, possibly five. I think you bill. gave me yeah. the book. It's called Buzzed. Yeah. So they decided to break all of these myths around all the different types of drugs, from caffeine through to like, the worst kind of yeah. crack, heroin, cocaine, cut at every level type of thing to really show people the consequences of taking drugs and how, depending on your own metabolism, depending on how, when you take the drugs, how often you take them, where you get them from, purity, they yeah. go into all of that to show how it affects you directly, how it affects you long-term, as far as we know, because some of the studies, you know, longitudinal studies take time, and so you don't always have the answer for 20, yeah. 30, sure. 50 years. Um, they also talked about how it influences your decisions and choices later on, even if you stop taking drugs. So for instance, if you take a lot of, you experiment a lot when you're in your late teens, early twenties, going through times where you're, you're adjusting to being an adult, you're adjusting to being out in the world, you're adjusting to a lot of different things. If at the time, you know, you take any compound that seems to ameliorate some of the more challenging, anxiety-driven mm. aspects of those, that time period, then you'll associate that later on with when you're going through a rough time. So you, you literally will think, ah, even if you're not aware of it, subconsciously you'll be thinking, well, when I was dealing with all of those problems back then, the drugs seemed to make them a little bit better. So that might work now. Even if you're not conscious of the fact that that's what you're doing. So short-term drug use at a particular time in life can lead to drug use at another point in your life yeah, when you don't yeah. actually need it but you've made that association yeah 
the physical impact we now, I mean, we know, for instance, that long-term, consistent, you know, consistently long-term use in men of marijuana in their teens, early 20s, can play a role in early onset Parkinson's and Parkinson's-like symptoms in men. We, that's been so early, sort so of early, early onset, 40s, 50s. 40, even 40, We know that it's likely to have a significant impact on fertility in men. And marijuana in, in and of itself is not a particularly nasty drug. We, and we roughly know how it works now. We didn't for many years. Um, we now know all the different parts of it. And in fact, you know, at the moment, everybody's going gaga over the whole CBD yeah. uh, mantra um, that's going to fix everything. Most of the companies that sell it, manufacture it, by the way, have no neuroscientists involved in them whatsoever. So I, I laugh. The minute we get some decent neuroscientists involved in some of these country, uh, companies, then I would actually say it's probably going to be a compound that will be very useful to us in the future, the CBD, yeah, the general health. The THC part for some disorders is good. But, but the bottom line is we, as a community, as, sort of as a research area, we haven't focused on unpacking how all of these drugs work because for the most part you get your funding to figure out how the brain works and how to fix things that go wrong. You get less money to figure out long-term effects of heroin use because somebody else is going to say, well, actually, it's more important that you study Yeah, people that don't care, so don't even have money for the research, I understand. But long-term, I mean, long-term effects of drug use, where we are starting to see where it can potentially tilt the balance in favor of more things going on later in life that wouldn't have gone on. But then in some cases, it's retrievable. Um, yeah, so if you stop? If you stop, yeah. But again, that those, those are pretty comprehensive studies that would have to be done to look at that. And there just isn't the bandwidth amongst... The one is doing them. Interesting. If, if you have a choice, if I ask you, if you have, you know, a spare $10 million, pounds, euros, yeah and you want to invest in some form of neuroscience research, and I give you a slate of advancing therapeutics in Alzheimer's, understanding the impact of you know, heroin use among 18 to 25 year olds when they're 60. Finding they, a if finding, they arrive at 60. Yeah. Finding a preventative cure for glioblastoma, which is one of the most lethal brain tumors, helping reduce the level of blindness from metanosa pigmentosa or macular degeneration, or yeah. being able to control severe dystonias and Parkinson's. I would if choose I the, eventually five, the, the first or the Can you tell me which one's fifth? Yeah, yeah. Definitely the area, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So that's where those studies sit. Addiction research is, is one angle of that that's used to get at it. But then addiction research covers everything. So why do you why do you so why have addictive certain people okay I have addictive personalities and that's more interesting. It's yeah. also one of the things that it I'm is, actually. always amazed by when people ask me, well, why should we fund this type of science or should we fund this? So well, the one thing that I can tell you is that 
99% of the really good scientists will only work on things that they think are interesting. <laughs> so you, yeah. you never want to try and fund something that to a scientist is going to be not particularly interesting because they want of course. care. Um, and they suffer from the curiosity of the scientists, first thing. They're creatures of habit. Yeah. They want to answer questions that are interesting and giving them something that's not, no matter how much money you give them, doesn't actually work. Um, but what's happening with the Alzheimer's research? Because I heard that uh, actually the funding is uh, decreasing because they're not getting, you know, very far. No, the, the funding actually... hasn't decreased. It's, if anything, it's increased. The UK launched a big initiative a few years ago to try and bring together both government funding, charity funding. Oh, that's great. Uh, and actually to sort of have a few key locations that shared their work and collaborated the, the them. Because it's affecting more and more DRI. people, you know? Yeah. It is, but again, Alzheimer's is not just one disorder. There's many different layers. It's caused by many different... Yeah, dementia. Things going wrong. It's a burden. It's a cost. I came from a, a, a fantastic panel yesterday that's part of the Milken Institute. They, they're running a series of dialogues across London this week, um, and I was part of a breakfast panel yesterday morning on strategic philanthropy and brain health. And Alzheimer's came up, of course. The, the key is it's become a, I mean, it's a massive burden economically, yeah. globally. Yeah. So Families, you want to look at that. Society, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, emotionally, yeah. financially, um, workplace, care facilities. So it, it is a burden. Uh, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that we've had over the last sort of 20, 30 years, probably, I don't know how many billions have been spent on yeah. Alzheimer's research, drug trials that have failed. I mean, we have nothing up until recently. I mean, there was a, a resurrection of a particular compound. Uh, Biogen is a pharmaceutical company in the US that's now back, it's back in play. It was, it was sort of seen that the clinical trials didn't work, but they've passed them about a little bit more. So that might show how, if I listen to people who spend more time focusing on it, um, we had a presentation recently from the head of the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Group in the US, Alzheimer's Research Foundation, um, National Institute of Aging, and then the people, some people from the UK. There's a lot more, there are new directions now. So there are, people are starting to look at different angles that they refused to see before. Most scientists have focused on two prevailing theories around what people, even the public, will have heard of these tangles in the brain or, yeah. or plaques. So plaques and tangles seem to be the big thing. Now they're sort of shifting away from those as the, the holy grail and starting to look at the fact that you can get many people who have Alzheimer's and when they do a post-mortem after they die, you don't see any of these plaques or tangles. You can get people that die without having shown any symptoms of Alzheimer's that have the plaques and tangles. So looking at really how much of it is cause and effect or, you know, we should be looking younger. I mean, one of the things we do know with a lot of these different neurological disorders is we, we should be able to see evidence of them going, beginning to go wrong, essentially in teens, adolescents to mid-twenties. Can you see that? We should be able to. We're now, we're wow. now looking at the fact that that's probably the time we should be looking. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's really But we need the, the elusive, what we call biomarkers. You need to be able to look for 
essentially the sort of canary in the coal mine. We need to be able to find out what the appropriate canary is yeah. <laughs> and see if we can see it as a team. We call it the prodrome phase. So the instead of a syndrome, which is what's happening, a prodrome, which is mm -hmm. beforehand. So there's much more emphasis now on the prodrome, on looking Interesting. where things go wrong. And they're likely to be going wrong. Even think, I mean, we know, for instance, that in Parkinson's patients, often they'll display aberrant taste sensations 10, 15 years before. Some early onset Alzheimer's dementia patients will show aberrant decision-making and aggressive behavior or how many years before? in the world, potentially up to 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Interesting. But if you're not looking for that, you could just assume yeah. they're having a bad day. Yeah, depression eventually. <laughs> yeah. You, can, you can think, oh, they, yeah. they just, you know, you look at your mother who, and I have a friend who this actually happened to, his mother was eventually put in a hospice, hospitalized for, for Alzheimer's, dementia. But when I started talking to him, and he described her behavior sort of 15 or so years before. You understood that actually... It was classic. She clear. become disengaged from her family, wasn't really interested, was quite... Not destructive, but was quite angry, was quite dismissive. Oh my God, it's so sad. But you wouldn't see that as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult. He just thought, oh yeah, well, mom was... Yeah, she's moody, she has a moody day, mom was yeah. you know, she wasn't really a great mum or you know, you come up with things like that. So but sad. yeah. Fast forward and you can then pull back and that were those were early yeah. Early um patterns of behaviour that represented what was actually breaking down. But still we cannot do anything to cure it, right? Or to prevent it. But that we don't know. Even if we know, we we can't. With a lot of things right mm -hmm. now, possibly not. But that doesn't mean to say we won't be able to. So, for instance, if we, if we really could figure out a reliable biomarker that told somebody in their 40s they would develop a particular type of Alzheimer's in their 60s or 70s, mm -hmm. could you begin working on improving their cognition, so improving their ability to navigate, improving their ability to mm -hmm. uh, remember? So we could do that. Could we? We, or we know that we can improve those types of behaviors, could we do it at scale? Because that's another thing people forget about. We can, I mean, we can cure all kinds of things in mice. Um, I mean, if you're a mice and a mouse and you get Alzheimer's or cancer or Parkinson's or schizophrenia, we've got you covered. Wow. It's just, you know, we're not mice. <laughs> I, I guess I'm you know, we can fix mice. We can fix, I mean, we can yeah. fix dogs. You know, I hope you, I hope you don't get um, <laughs> anything, but... You know, if you did, we can fix you, but but the human brain is just that little bit more complicated. But if we can turn something catastrophic into chronic with the right aids... It's much better, absolutely. You add, you add value. It's the same, I mean, a, a very good example is spinal cord injury patients. If you ask anybody that's paralyzed, quadriplegic, semi whatever level, they won't ask you to help them walk again. That's not their first ask. What do, what do they ask? I mean, after initially, perhaps, you know, the first few weeks in hospital or whatever, yes, yeah. they want to walk again. It's devastating. It's overwhelming. 
but give them a little bit of time in a wheelchair or with AIDS. The first thing they will ask you that they want above all else is the ability to go to the toilet. I understand. To have control, they, yeah. to have control of their bladder. The second thing they will ask for is their ability to have sex normally. I understand. So the two things. And they will tell, they, they, I've been in town hall meetings with people where the, literally that, that, that's, give them that, give them urinary control and sexual function control and that would make their life 100% better immediately. But still we can't do year, that. No, but this is the thing, for years scientific researchers were so focused on can we get them to walk again, can we fix the break in the spinal cord, can we, can we replace the neurons that will allow them to walk again. So all of that work, they weren't listening to the patient who said, I, I get it, walking would be lovely, but it's a long shot and I want to actually live my life rather than spend the next 50 years praying sure. that I might be able to walk again. Yeah, sure. I have a wheelchair, I have help. I can, most people yeah. can function at significant levels beyond any able-bodied person, quite frankly. If you look at some of the Paralympics, you'd be, you'd think I couldn't do much. Yeah, know, oh my God, I, I saw, they're amazing. What they but science ignored some very simple yeah. things. So now actually, that's one of the things. So now there are implantable devices that can control they can control urination. Yeah. Wow. To be blunt, they can, in, in the case of men, they can give them an erection. Which, all of a sudden, oh. their confidence, their belief in themselves, their relationship with their spouse or partner. Oh, it changes. Yeah. The family life that then improves significantly. So, science is wonderful. Neuroscience in yeah. particular is wonderful. But we sometimes we get a little bit too clever with wanting to fix the too much magical yeah. thing. Um, That's interesting. And I think I actually think that the younger generations coming through see that more than we ever did. Have any of that reset? I mean, going back to Ruby talks about this in, some, in a lot of her talks and books, and it's very true. Evolution's been great for the most part, our bodies have evolved pretty rapidly in a short amount of time. Our brains still haven't quite evolved as quick as we would hope. Yeah. They're still largely wired, the deeper levels of the brain, to respond to threats like, you know, you're out hunting on the plane, and there's a tiger. Yeah. It's pretty quick, you know. You have to Everything survive. Goes, you know, yeah. Fight or flight response turns on as it's supposed to, and you run, and hopefully you don't get eaten. Yeah. And once you've escaped, everything goes down. Whereas now, you're a young girl or boy looking at an Instagram feed and thinking that you should be just like that person and, and you're not and you keep seeing that or you're looking at a social media feed of some kind that keeps saying, you're, you're fat, you're stupid, go and kill yourself. Don't you mean then these are all happening? Yeah. You know, the tiger didn't do that. The tiger didn't mess with you. It didn't sort of look at the hunter and go, I might come get you, I might not come get you. You're so, looking fat today, those hips are a bit round. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that look on you. I mean, it was none of that. It was yeah, just, so I'm here, I'll eat you if you don't run. Done. Our brain is not equipped to actually deal no. with this kind of So you of push a, all of those fight or flight, anxiety, you push them up, and that's where they stay. Mm. All from a little device that's phenomenal, but in terms of it helps our lives in many other ways. Um, but we've lost this 
this ability to switch down those kinds of chemicals. And when they stick around, they're quite destructive. They, they alter all different other kinds of activities in your brain, your body, everything else. But so violence, if you, if you look at it in this big continuum of what it actually means, is, is really quite, quite complicated. But we don't talk about it like that. We talk about it as bullying or, yeah. or aggression or something like that. But it's, it's quite it's strictly quite connected. Uh, you know, also we don't talk so much about uh, the connection between domestic violence and mental health. You know, and they're strictly connected. I'm sure. You know, because uh, so so we need definitely more research. You know, we need more fundings from the government. I guess. You know, yeah, I mean, most people who are well balanced and happy don't typically yeah. cause chaos in yeah. people's lives. And violence is chaos. I mean, it's essentially it's a disordered thought process. It's a it's an uncontrollable, sometimes directed, sometimes not, but usually a relatively uncontrollable thought process. I mean, it can be pre-planned, but it came from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much. I really learned a lot talking to you. It's always inspiring, and I hope you will be back soon. Now, I have the final five. This, <laughs> <laughs> this question usually uh, have to be answered very quickly. Okay. So do your best. What's the one thing people would never know about you just by looking at you? That I'm a painter. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> You're an artist as well. I'm an artist, not just a scientist. I love that. If you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? To encourage everybody to trust themselves. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a superpower, but if I could convince everybody to trust themselves, I think we'd be able to communicate yeah, if, more. If you can convince billions of people to do that, it's a superpower, I guess. <laughs> what is your spirit animal? Raven. What have you learned from your past relationship? That I like myself a lot more now. <laughs> this is a very good lesson, I guess. It's taken a while, but I actually think I, I like myself more now. And I can probably figure out a better relationship next time around. That's great. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? To live it. To be present. To be present. To be present in your own story. And own it. Yeah, to own your own story and to be present. And try not to miss any of it because you, you don't get a do-over. Oh, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Seriously, I well, love thank you. you so much. I'm so happy yeah. that you are here. Thank you for coming. Thank I know you. now you have to run away. Your journey is very busy. <laughs> Please come Head back. back to the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Please come back. Come back I soon. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Unleash the Game Changers. I hope you learned something. I hope you were inspired uh, as I was. Please get in touch with me, leave a comment, let me know what do you think uh, about uh, this podcast and also who do you think I should interview in the future, which questions I might uh, you know, ask. And also share with your friends via your social media. It's very important uh, if you subscribe and share and you let everyone know that you like this content. Thank you and see you soon at Unleashed.